This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today in the program, we delve into the world of psychedelics. Later, you'll hear from author and journalist Michael Pollan about new research into the hallucinogenic LSD. But first, magic mushrooms. There's been some evidence for a while that this drug, it's actually called psilocybin, can help relieve depression and anxiety. Now, a small study of people with major depression, which hasn't been fully treated with existing medications and psychotherapy, has found significant benefits from reasonably high doses of psilocybin, given in a controlled environment with a therapist present. The study done was at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which has a long history of psychedelic research, led by Roland Griffiths, who's Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience. Happy to be here. I mean, we should just set context here before we get into the study. Johns Hopkins has probably been studying psychedelics longer than, in a continuous way than any other institution in the United States, if not the world. Well, certainly in the United States, we initiated our work with psychedelics 20 years ago at a time where it was unprecedented to get approval to administer a psychedelic to psychedelically naive individual, at least you know over the last several decades after the trauma of the uh, psychedelic uh, 60s. So we've done quite a bit of work with psychedelics over that period of time, doing studies in healthy volunteers and in patient populations. We've administered psilocybin to almost 400 participants in almost 700 sessions over that period of time. And again, before we get to this study, just broadly, what have you found? I mean, what, what are the highlights of uh, the research so far? Well, the basic and most remarkable finding, and it really set me off on this adventure, I would have to say I'm trained as a clinical psychopharmacologist, had done a lot of work with mood-altering drugs. And then 25 years ago or so, I undertook a meditation practice, and that got me very curious about altered states of consciousness. And so we initiated our first study with a pretty high dose of psilocybin. You know, I'd read that literature, but I was kind of skeptical about what might happen. And it really is uh, fantastically interesting. Basically, if you give a high dose of psilocybin to people who have been carefully screened and prepared and they're supported during their sessions and after their sessions, They end up having experiences that map on or look quite similar to naturally occurring mystical or transcendent kinds of experiences and to which people report enduring long-term changes, positive changes in attitudes, moods, and behavior. And when asked to reflect back or rate the quality of that experience, most people studied will rate the experience as among the most personally meaningful and spiritually significant experience of their entire lifetime, comparing it, for instance, to birth of a firstborn child or death of a parent. So there's something astonishingly interesting about these kinds of experiences. And it's not just psychedelics. We know that humans from beginning of documented time have had experiences that are transitional of this sort. It's just now that we have 
a model system for, for studying these. So we've done a lot of work looking at dose effects and replicability of the effects and trying to understand the extent to which expectancies feed into these effects, which they do some, but they certainly don't determine the entire effect. So, and then we've ventured not into clinical populations. And which, that's, which is where this trial comes up. And it was a trial of people with major depressive disorder, and that really qualifies people with a deep, dark depression and treatments, traditional treatments such as SSRIs, normal antidepressants, haven't worked that well, or they've only worked partially. We've covered this issue before. It is a, a difficult problem, and quite a high percentage of people with major depression don't get full recovery, if you like, from the drugs themselves. Mm. And it's a small trial. So you did it in people, uh, so about 24 people, I understand, and it wasn't with a placebo, but essentially you, you had a control population who eventually got the drug. Is that right? Did I get that design yep. right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let me just say before going into the most recent trial, we also had run a trial and published it back in 2016, and that was a placebo-controlled double-blind trial. And these were people who were anxious or depressed, secondary to having a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. And that study showed a single session, a single exposure to psilocybin produced long-term decreases in anxiety and depression. So this is a follow-on study. It's in people with major depression. And as you mentioned, they're, you know, very often incompletely treated and, you know, 10 to 30% of people with major depression are considered to be completely treatment resistant. And plus, the conventional SSRIs have a host of pretty aversive side effects that dampers people's enthusiasm for them. So what did you find? Yeah. So this is major, major depression. And what we did is give psilocybin on two sessions. This is done at about a two-week interval between the sessions. And what we found is really huge, rapid and substantial decreases in depressive symptomatology. So we used a gold standard measure for assessing depression. That's a clinician-rated measure of depression, and the clinicians are blinded to the, the people and the drug condition. And what we showed is even after the first session, the rates of depressive symptoms dropped dramatically and they stayed low. Now, this study, we just followed people out to four weeks, but we'll be following this study up with a longer-term follow-up. Because the, there is evidence that it doesn't last forever when you do it with um, you know, other studies have suggested that it's a, maybe a year later it comes back. Well, there's one open-label study in treatment-resistant depression that shows some reemergence. And we've seen we've seen some of that, but we're really anticipating past our four week follow up. We are seeing substantial effects. But let me just underscore the magnitude of these effects. So about 70 percent of people had decreases in depression score of over 50 percent. It was over 50 percent were in complete remission at four weeks. So that is, they're no longer distinguishable from the normal population. And those effect sizes 
are huge. So compared to a trial that would examine, say, an SSRI, these effect sizes are three to four times greater. So let me just explore a few things here. One is there is some evidence that if you don't actually have a transcendental experience, in other words, you don't induce a sense of out of body merging of your ego with the environment, which is what these drugs tend to do in reasonable doses. If you don't have that experience, you tend not to get the antidepressive effects. So something cathartic has got to happen in the brain. Did you find that in this study? There is good data, and we've seen it in other studies. The degree of the so-called transcendent experience predicts the degree of therapeutic or positive outcome. And we saw that. It it comes out as a correlation between the mystical experience and subsequent effects. People can have full therapeutic responses in absence of such an effect. So some people will report experiences of great personal insight, even of a psychodynamic or a historical nature. And they won't say that they've had a mystical experience per se, but they appear to be enduringly changed in a positive way. Second question I've got is that you couldn't design a treatment that's more susceptible to the placebo effect. So they come in, they've read about this, they've been screened for, um, you know, whether they've got schizophrenia or a tendency to psychosis. They come into a nice area, they've got a therapist, they're there for eight hours in a nice environment, they're listening to music, there's a whole shtick around taking the psychedelic, which is partly for safety, partly to help induce this transcendental or mystical experience. So the expectation of benefit is huge, and that's just when you get a placebo effect. I mean, that's surely a criticism of the study. Well, let's see. <laughs> the, um, those expectancy effects are wrapped around the therapeutic effects. There's no question, and, and we understand this, fundamentally about psychedelics. Their effects depend on set and setting. And so expectation plays a role, no question about that. I suspect that there's actually no absolutely good control for that, short of an experiment in which you completely anesthetize someone uh, so that they couldn't detect the effects of the psychedelic. (laughs) But that seems like a rather absurd study to, to run. So it's a, small, it's a small study, 24 people without a placebo arm, it's a control group. Correct. Uh, how many people would have to be studied for you to be sure, you know, and obviously to do a placebo control study, you'd have to recreate everything except the drug. How many people would you have to study to be sure this is ready for showtime? Our previous study in cancer patients was placebo controlled, and we've run other studies with active comparative compounds. So we know this effect is is real. But you, you raised a good point. Okay, so for MDD, what would it take to get this approved? Well, in fact, there are two companies now in the United States that are have gotten something called breakthrough therapy status from our Food and Drug Administration, which is the group that oversees these clinical trials for drug approval. And they are conducting trials right now that, if positive, would result in or could result in approval of psilocybin. Those studies generally have 100 to 200 participants, and they are placebo controlled. That's that's the requirement that FDA 
is making for these studies. Whether or not that's the best control or not is a little bit unclear to me because of the very psychoactive nature of the psychedelic. But anyway, those studies are ongoing. I would predict that if they're positive and if some significant untoward effects of psilocybin are not revealed, which, you know, could be the case. And psilocybin is certainly not without risks. Well, I would guess that approval might be forthcoming in four to six years. So there's other drugs around. There's people going to ayahuasca retreats in Australia. There's LSD around. Is this specific to magic mushrooms, to psilocybin, or can you generalize that anything that induces a profound mystical experience could have an antidepressant effect? Well, we simply don't have the data to address that, but it's true that ayahuasca, who's in the principal psychoactive component there is DMT and LSD, which is a, a synthesized compound. They act through similar neurophysiological receptor mechanisms as psilocybin. It's not clear all of the pluses and minuses of whether or not all those drugs will have efficacy in a condition such as a major depression. So I think we'll have to see, but it would appear that these compounds are more similar than different, although they have some very significant differences. And so it's, it's quite possible that there would be therapeutic value in depression with both ayahuasca and LSD. Roland Griffiths, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Fascinating research. Happy to join you. Roland Griffiths is Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. As we just heard, there's been something of a renaissance in research into the possible therapeutic benefits of these drugs. American writer and journalist Michael Pollan has explored this phenomenon in his book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. It's mostly about mental health issues and addiction and indeed terminal illness, but it's also about how healthy people are using psychedelics to change their lives. I spoke to Michael a couple of years ago in front of a live audience at the Sydney Opera House about the book, and here's some of that conversation. So how psychedelics work is not that well understood, although in this new wave, this renaissance of research, we have tools we didn't have then. One of them is neuroimaging, fMRI and MEG and some other modes. And one of the most interesting findings, I'm going to start with the default mode network and work toward the ego issue, is that when they began imaging the brains of people on psilocybin and LSD, which involves essentially injecting them and then sliding them into an MRI. I mean, if you've ever been in an MRI machine, talk about set and setting. That is, it's not optimal. Very narrow setting. We, we, we owe these volunteers an enormous debt of gratitude. They kind of expected to see a very excited brain with lots of centers lighting up. But they were very surprised to see that one particular network that I had never heard of was downregulated, was, was silenced basically. And that's the default mode network. What is the default mode network? It was only discovered about 15, 20 years ago. And it's a very tightly linked set of structures that involve the prefrontal cortex, the posterior singular cortex, and these deeper, older centers tied to uh, emotion and memory. 
It's a regulatory network. The brain is a hierarchical system, and it's kind of at the top. It's a, one researcher called it the orchestra conductor. The traffic corporate. manager. Yeah, the traffic manager. And, and lots of information passes through this hub. What does the default mode network do? Well, it appears to be involved in self-reflection, mind-wandering. Uh, the reason it was discovered is that when you put someone in an fMRI and you're going to give them a task to do, you need a baseline. So they, they would say, don't do anything, don't think about anything, and it would light up. It's kind of where the mind goes when it's not occupied by attention. So it's involved in self-reflection, time travel, the ability to think about the future and the past, theory of mind, the ability to impute mental states to other beings, which is important to moral, you know, moral development and things like that. And something called the narrative or autobiographical self. That's the way we take the events of our lives and weave them into the story of who we think we are. So to the extent that the ego has a location in the brain, it, it's in this network, it appears. And interestingly enough, this network goes quiet. And the degree to which it's silenced correlates with reports from volunteers of ego dissolution, this sense that yourself is gone and you are just this disembodied awareness or you've merged with something larger than yourself. But the walls of ego have come down. Which people, when they're guiding you through this, often talk about if you come across something fearful, walk towards it because it's, this causes the fear in some ways is that you feel yourself falling apart. The preservation of ego. That's one of the reasons I think it's so central. So when they're preparing you in this guided psychedelic therapy, which is different than the way it's used recreationally, they do tell you, if you feel like you're melting, going crazy, dying, go with it. Don't fight it. If, yes, if you see a monster, you know, step right up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind? When your ego dissolves, um, interesting things happen. One is there's no subject-object duality. You become part of something bigger. And that can be an incredibly ecstatic experience. But if you're fighting to hold on to your ego, and the ego tries to preserve itself, you're going to be really anxious. And I think that is at the root of many so-called bad trips, this desire to hold on when you're melting. And also, if, if it's happening and, and you're at a festival or at the dinner table, um, <laughs> you're going to fight. And so what a good guide will do is create an environment, a set and setting, where you feel safe enough to let go. And I did have an experience where that happened that was, that was quite profound. And, you know, it sounds like a scary thing, but if you surrender, it's actually an ecstatic thing in the literal sense of you're outside your normal self. So bits of the brain are communicating with each other which don't normally do so. When this regulatory hub goes down, instead of all these signals passing through it and being trafficked around, they start talking to each other. So for the first time, say, your visual cortex is talking directly to your memory or emotion centers. And so you get all this new traffic. The brain is rewired temporarily, and new connections are being made, and some of them may have lasting effects. You know, we don't know yet exactly. And the brain becomes much more densely connected. And some people have, in their normal mode, they have more active default mode networks than others, and it has consequences for their personality and whether they're liable to get depression or not. Yeah. So one theory of depression is that it's, it, it involves an overactive default mode network. The default mode network is trying to, you know, run the show, and sometimes it becomes hypervigilant, say. So the kinds of disorders that psychedelics appears in this, in this research to help things like depression, 
anxiety, addiction, obsession, they're all at one end of the spectrum of mental function, which is to say they're characterized by very rigid thinking, habits that have become really deeply ingrained that you can't break out of. And this may be something enforced by the default mode network and that storytelling function I mentioned. So people get trapped in these narratives about themselves that, you know, I can't get through the day without a drink or a cigarette. I'm unworthy of love. My work is hoping, shit. Yeah. And it is the ego that's telling those stories. And sometimes we get stuck in them. And, and what happens at the other end? Because that's where maybe there's some risk in psychedelics. Yeah. So at the other end, you have schizophrenia and, you know, a disordered mind. And for people in that situation, it doesn't not appear that psychedelics are a good idea. And indeed, there are some people who have had psychotic breaks on psychedelics. So the risk issue is worth addressing, though, I think. You know, before I had the experiences I did for this book, I, I felt I couldn't write a book on psychedelics without having a series of psychedelic experiences because I hadn't done it at the age-appropriate stage of life. I'm kind of a late bloomer when it comes to psychedelics. I was nervous about it. I was very reluctant. And, you know, 20-year-old males are fairly reckless. And, you know, 58-year-old males, not so much. And before, before we leave the default mode network, yeah. what do we know lowers the activity? Because it's not just psychedelics no, lower oh no. the activity of this. And it's critical to this issue of, do you need to take a psychedelic? Are there, are there are other ways to do it. And we'll learn about more. The one we know about for sure, and this was really interesting, at the same time they were imaging the brains of people on LSD and psilocybin in London at Imperial College, a psychiatrist at Yale was imaging the brains using the same technology of very experienced meditators, people with more than 10,000 hours of meditation experience. He would put them in and ask them to meditate. And guess what? Their brains looked identical. The default mode network is silenced also in successful meditation. And that sort of makes sense because there is a loss of ego. So we know that's another way to silence the default mode And network. you silenced it by recapitulating your psychedelic experience. I did a very interesting kind of neural feedback exercise with this psychiatrist. His name is Judd Brewer, who's been studying meditation as a technique for behavior change, addiction, and things like that. And he had set up a neural feedback thing focused on one particular part of the default mode network, the posterior cingulate cortex. This is the part that is involved in that storytelling function that constructs the narrative of who we are. So if I show you a list of adjectives, handsome, wealthy, generous, and I just ask you to think about it, this part of your brain will not light up. But if I say, think about how all these adjectives apply or don't apply to you, it lights up. So it's really about making that connection between self and qualities in the world. So I did this exercise with him to see if I could reduce activity in this part of the default mode network. And what I did, and I didn't tell him I was going to do this. He had various meditation exercises. I said, I'm going to try something. Will you just measure this? And I remembered a powerful psychedelic experience I'd had, an image that had come to me when I was on ayahuasca. And while I was experiencing it in my head, the default mode network went quiet. And he was like, what happened? What were you thinking about? So there are probably other, many other ways we can do this. And you also, in a training session, did holotropic breathing. Describe what holotropic breathing is. Holotropic breath work is a method of achieving a psychedelic state without 
a psychedelic drug. It was invented by Stanislav Grof, who was a Czech emigre psychiatrist, very involved with this period of psychedelic research I'm describing, but especially in the 60s. And when it was made illegal, he, he was having such success in his psychiatric practice that he wanted to come up with something else that would induce the state that was legal. So drawing on yogic traditions and drumming and all these kind of traditional methods of inducing trance, he came up with something called holotropic breathwork, where essentially you enter into a pattern of breathing that's very fast, and you're hearing strong rhythmic music. You're exhaling more than you're inhaling. You're hyperventilating, basically. And I did this. And you, it works for about three-quarters of people. I slipped into this trance state within like five minutes, where I, I no longer had to try to breathe that way. It sustained itself. And I had this image of myself riding a horse through a forest. And it was the most uncanny thing. And it was just from breathing. And it lasted about 45 minutes. And it gave you atrial fibrillation. It did. It had, it had a side effect. I have, I had, I've actually had it fixed, a heart condition called atrial fibrillation, which your heart goes into weird rhythms sometimes. And before I undertook any kind of psychedelic experience, this is the difference of doing psychedelics in your late 50s, I consulted my cardiologist. <laughs> and and he, your proctologist? <laughs> no, I didn't go that far. He kind of green-lighted everything except MDMA, ecstasy. And this guide I was working with usually starts with ecstasy and then moves you to LSD. And I said, look, I can't do the ecstasy. He doesn't recommend it because it's an amphetamine and it drives up your heart rate. But ironically, on the no-drug experience, I had an episode, a very scary episode of atrial fibrillation. So let's talk about your experiences. I mean, no, let's just finish okay. talking about risk. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot to cover. So in addition to going to my cardiologist and learning about this, before I did this, I wanted to know what kind of danger I was putting myself in. And what I learned about psychedelics was pretty surprising. I learned first that they're remarkably, and, and here I'm talking specifically about psilocybin and LSD, they're remarkably non-toxic drugs. There is no lethal dose that has ever been found for LSD or psilocybin. You can't say that. They're over-the-counter drugs that have a well-known lethal dose. Tylenol is, a, is an example. It's a couple dozen pills. So that's pretty remarkable and reassuring. And I also found that they're non-addictive. They're not habit-forming. They don't have that reinforcement effect. And so if you have a rat in a cage and you've set it up, you know, that classic drug test where they have two levers. One administers the drug to their bloodstream. The other gives them, you know, sugar water. And if it's cocaine, the rat will keep pressing that lever until it dies, or heroin until it's addicted. You give it LSD, once. That's it. <laughs> they will never go back to that lever. <laughs> they don't know how to interpret the experience. So, so it, doesn't, it doesn't affect the dopamine centers the way you know, classic drugs of addiction do. But there are risks, and the risks are psychological and that there are people can have terrifying experiences. There was a study done of people who'd had bad trips just last year, a survey, and in 7.8%, between 7 and 8% of the people had sought psychiatric help within the first year afterwards. So it had lingering effects that were very troubling. And there are a Guided or unguided? These were unguided. Unguided. And I think that that's important. And there are a certain number of people who have had psychotic breaks on LSD this, and, and psilocybin. This really does happen. Whether they would have eventually had them anyway is a question. Some people think that 
you know, it's any kind of mental trauma or mental disturbance can kick it off. It can be alcohol, cannabis, a divorce of your parents at that window when people get schizophrenia. So they're real psychological risks, but they are mitigated to some extent, to a large extent, by having a guide, someone who can talk you through difficult times and actually help you benefit from that bad trip. I mean, it's like a nightmare. You can analyze it and get some value if you're with a good therapist. Writer and journalist Michael Pollan speaking with me at the Sydney Opera House a year or so ago. And the full conversation is available in two earlier episodes of the Health Report podcast. Just search for anxiety, depression and the new science of psychedelics. I'm Norman Swan and this has been the Health Report. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.